Welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook and support this podcast by going to audiblefreetrial.com slash headonhistory. I wanted to start off by giving a quick shout out to three people who've uh, provided some feedback for the podcast and have showed some love. I want to give them some love. Aisha McFadden, Angela A. Lee, and Bram Hubble, all who have tweeted out to me uh, their thoughts about Head on History. I'm glad that you all are enjoying the podcast, and thank you for your thoughts and feedback. I will definitely take on board the suggestion of including uh, the book recommendations in the notes of the podcast. We'll be adding them going forward and I'm going to go back and add some of the uh, links to those books. Uh, So thanks for that. Today, what I want to talk about is continuing the theme of season three of the other Islams, really kind of looking at the borders of the Islamic world. Um, I want to look at Islam in Southeast Asia, and we're going to do a couple episodes on this. Today, I'm going to give you a little bit of the chronology and the overview of Islam in South Asia, and then the next couple episodes, we'll be digging a little bit deeper into specific practices. Um... The reason I find uh, Islam in South Asia such an the reason why I think it's such an important topic is because the majority of Muslims actually live outside of the Middle East. The largest Muslim country in the world today is Indonesia. Now, when I tell this to my students, they're often taken aback. For them, Islam is very much Middle Eastern, and more so than Middle East, it's Arab. In fact, the two are synonymous with one another. And while true, the holy book of Islam, the Quran, is written in Arabic. As those of you who have been following this podcast will realize by now, the majority of the development in the theology of Islam and the intellectual culture of Islam happens in North Africa and in the Persianate world. Hardly what we would consider the Arab world properly. It's not in the Levant. It's not in Arabia. It's actually in places like... Baghdad and Bukhara and Balkh and Cairo and and uh, Fez and Morocco and Timbuktu, that these are really the kind of the centers of Islamic learning, even in Al Andalus, um, and and so I think it's important to really recognize that even though we call this the other Islams or looking at Islam in the margins, that in reality that the what we consider the center of Islam is a little bit misplaced, that the centers of Islam are in Africa and in 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 the Persianate world, and definitely in Southeast Asia. The majority of Muslims, 62% of Muslims, live outside of the, of the uh, Arab world or the Middle East. They come from Southeast Asia and South Asia. Uh, right now, the largest country is Indonesia, with Malaysia, India, and Pakistan all uh, up there as, as the largest Muslim countries. Um, India growing exponentially probably will become the second largest Muslim country or third largest Muslim country in the world. Um, so I think it's it's important to talk about these regions and how Islam arrived. So looking today at kind of a Malaysia and Indonesia and Southeast Asia, uh, like Africa, what we find is that Islam really came through trade. Now, the earliest we believe it started in the 9th century with Indian Ocean trade taking off. Now, we know about the Silk Road, which more accurately is known as the Silk Roads. Um, and the Silk Roads are a series of networks that com- that connect the kind of Eurasian world. And while often it's taught as goods traveling from China to Europe, the reality is that the vast majority of the trading is actually happening um, in- locally, so that uh, trade would be networks from Baghdad to, say, New Delhi, uh, trade networks 
networks from, let's say, Bukhara to uh, Mecca, places like that. This is where the trade is happening. It's actually not one road or all, all leading from China to Europe. That's actually a small percentage of the trade makes it all the way over to Europe, which is one of the reasons why the goods that do arrive, silk and porcelain, etc., are so expensive in Europe. Most of it is happening in, in uh, the South Asia and uh, the Middle East proper. But around the 9th century, new routes were being uh, you know, for uh, developed, and those routes were predominantly vis-a-vis the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean allowed a sort of shortcut to connect through the Silk Roads. It created a series of ports. This takes off uh, in the 16th century by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire really develops the trade routes. We often talk about the age of exploration, really looking at Portugal, Spain, France, England, etc., moving into the Atlantic, uh, with some going into into the Indian Ocean, uh, the sort of age of exploration. But there's a really fantastic book called The Ottoman, uh, the Ottomans in the Age of Exploration, which looks at the 16th century. Um, and the, the Indian Ocean really becomes a hub of, of trade. Um, and so what we we see is that it's likely, or what we believe that it's likely through these trade routes that started in the 9th century and really developed in the 16th century, that that hundred, several hundred years of developing the Indian Ocean trade is where Islam arrived in uh, Southeast Asia. It's probably likely that up until about the 12th century, Islam was restricted to the ports. And another kind of theory has been put forth that Islam likely started amongst the Cham uh, ethnic uh, population in Vietnam and then moved and migrated to Akka in Sumatra. Um, and this is also uh, possible because one of the things we see in the region is the ethnic diversity. We see the Malay people, we see the Cham people, we see a variety of different peoples in Southeast Asia, and this ethnic diversity also corresponds to some degree with religion. So we see the Cham, the indigenous Cham, also uh, having a high population uh, of Muslims. The reason why trade with Java, Sumatra, uh, and, and Indo- Indonesia and Malaysia becomes so important is th- mostly because of spices. This is a region where nutmeg and cloves and peppers uh, are cultivated, and all three of them become high in demand. It's possible that this originally started with, uh, as a sort of um, shortcut vis-a-vis China, that the spices that were coming in from China and the Indian world into the Middle East then developed into a shortcut. Rather than going through India or China, people would end up in Indonesia and Malaysia. So that the connections are either from Vietnam or from India. The first actual Muslim state was uh, established by a guy named Malik ul-Salih, and it was established in 1267. This state was known as Samdura Pasai. Now, I'm going to mispronounce all sorts of words and names this episode, so I beg your indulgence uh, in advance. We're working out in in a language that I'm not familiar with. I'm I'm mostly uh, Arabic-Persian. Greek, Latin, any of those I've got down for you. Um, but we're, we're, the Malay languages and the Javanese languages are a little bit beyond me, so I do apologize in advance, but I'm going to do my best. So the, the Samudera Pasai is the first Muslim sultanate, and Mal- Malik Ulsa Asali likely was connected 
to uh, this to Samudera Pasai vis-a-vis India, and he converted to Islam, changing his name to Malak ul Salim. Now we know that this region is Muslim because in 1345, Ibn Battuta, the very famous uh, North African traveler chronicle, the guy who originally wrote uh, travel blogs, <laughs> you know, so you, today is the the popular. Uh, you know, popular thing to do is is to to do travel blogs. In fact, one of our colleagues here at Head on History, our, our sound producer, runs a travel blog, sevencrossroads.com, right? sevencrossroads.com. So but he, the, the kind of spiritual or intellectual uh, predecessor of, of blogs like sevencrossroads.com was Ibn Battuta, who basically traveled around the world, and he wrote this fantastic chronicle. And he was actually one of the first to travel to Samudera Pasai, and he notes in his kind of log that the ruler of the region was a deeply pious Muslim who had performed all of the five pillars of zakat, and he also notes that the madhab of that particular region uh, was the Shafi madhab, and we've talked about Shafi madhabs when we talked about the intellectual history and theological history of Islam in the second season, last season. Now, the Shafi connection tells us that there is a deep connection to India. So that it's likely that Islam traveled from India to Indonesia and Malaysia. And that if it is Indian Muslims that are bringing in um, Islam, they're also bringing in Shafi Islam, a particular brand of Islam. So we can see the sort of intellectual genealogy there. But we know that predominantly, like in Africa, most of this conversion to Islam was slow and gradual and started vis-a-vis trade. The trade routes eventually then converted the elites. You would have the emergence of a sort of literati who became administrators and officials as well as the conversion of kings. We saw this in Africa when we talked about the episodes of of the Al-Maghrib that Kings and rulers converted Islam first as a sort of sign of prestige, of connecting with merchants. And when they converted, they then kind of converted from a top-down fashion. While not uh, forced conversion, there was certainly a sort of official Islamification or Islamization that happened over time, starting with the rulers who then import, who then uh, uh, integrated Islam into their administrations, who then from those administrations would have official who then were Muslim, who then spoke Arabic and experts in Islamic law and Islamic practices and beliefs, and from there, the population grew. So what we're seeing is probably a process of several hundred years. If it starts somewhere in the 9th century, it's really until the 16th century where it starts to culminate. So it takes a long process of about probably five to 600 years of the Islamization of Southeast Asia. After Samudra Pasai, the other kind of really major Islamic state, and I think this really demonstrates the process that I'm talking about, is the Malacca Sultanate in the 15th century, and and it's a Malay Sultanate. Um, And it establishes a a really strong naval kind of uh, hegemony. 
and it is a port city. And so, th again, we see that the kind of naval trade or sea trade is the key here. Uh, Raja Tenga is the guy who converts to Islam. He's the king or the ruler of the Malacca Sultanate or that region. Um, and he's converted by a guy named Saeed Abdul Aziz. Saeed Abdul Aziz uh, was likely an Arab, but comes from India. So he comes through India, he arrives at this area, and he convinces Raja Tenga to convert. And Raja Tenga changes his name to Muhammad Shah. And what he does is he then adopts Islam into it, his, his administration. He starts to govern based on Islamic principles. He observes the five pillars of Islam. Uh, he believes in, in sort of the custodianship of Islamic history and Islamic Sharia. Uh, that is, uh, uh, Islamic practices. There are no forced conversions or anything like that, but Islam becomes associated with both the scholarly tradition and the uh, the sort of scholastic tradition that we see with the ulama, like Said Abdulaziz, as well as the merchant population. So you have these merchants that are bringing vast amounts of wealth, and that becomes an incentive for rulers to convert. Once the rulers convert, they then Islamize the uh, administration, and then slowly from then, the population begins to adopt Islam, which becomes associated with the kind of uh, prestige of the government, the prestige of traders, and the prestige of scholars. Now, what's interesting is that along with uh, uh, the traders come Sufi saints, and we're going to talk about them in the form of the Wali Sangha. But the traders, the reason why these areas become so important to trade is not just because of their resources like spices, but also because of the routes themselves. So the Malacca Sultanate, for example, is right next to the Straits of Malacca, and so it controls all the routes going through all the way to China. And as a result of that, it ends up becoming super prosperous, very wealthy. This trade routes attracts Sufi mystics. The Sufi mystics uh, are itinerant, right? They they travel about, they move about. Uh, we talked about Sufism in season one. We definitely talked about it in season two. And Sufi mystics really saw it upon their mission to kind of go to the four corners of the world and preach Islam. And in Java, the, the kind of uh, Sufi mystics that, that become the forefathers of Islam, that, pro that really kind of convert the region, are known as the Wali Sangha. And the Wali Sangha come from Gujarat and India via Samdura Pasai. Samdura Pasai or Aka uh, is the uh, first Muslim state that was established. Um, and they eventually come from, uh, from India through Samudra, Samdura Pasai to Java. And the first of these Wali Sangha was a guy named Maulana Malik Ibrahim. And he was likely Samarkandi from the region of central uh, Central Asia. And he arrived in Java in 1419. Now, the Wali Sangha become these sort of mystic figures. Wali literally means saint or, uh, you know, appointed by God, but the equivalent of a sort of saint. They end up becoming kind of these charismatic folks figures, these people that would perform healings and miracles, and as a result were associated with a sort of mystery tradition or a, myst a mystical tradition um, that was very popular 
for uh, the average Javanese. It was not only their folk popularity that that made Islam attractive, but it was this this the mystique of Islam. Islam was associated with the foreign powers, with traders, and now these mystics who were coming from India and performing miracles and demonstrating some sort of kind of hidden knowledge, and so they end up becoming um, very important figures that that allow that conversion process. Now, in addition to kind of the Sufi mystics, you had programs of conversion taken on by figures. The three most famous figures in 1605 that were part of the conversion process of the Islamization of the region were known as Daturi Badang, Daturi Patimang, Daturi Tiru. These three figures develop what's known as Daqwa. Daqwa is the is a kind of Javanese of of Dawa. Dawa meaning to call someone to Islam, and they are very much like the Wali Sangha, associated with this kind of itinerant process of moving through the. Uh, region and preaching Islam, calling people to Islam. They are uh, both official uh, figures associated with the uh, government of the Javanese, as well as sort of folk figures, heroes that become deeply attractive to the Javanese. This kind of folk component uh, of Islam, and particularly this kind of Sufi uh, com- version of Islam that comes to uh, J- Indonesia and Malaysia through, J- uh, through Java, allows a sort of syncretic Islam to take root. And this is very important. Because of the Sufism is really dynamic, Sufism uh, has certainly a sort of high mystical tradition. It also has a deeply uh, popular folk practice. It allows for certain be- indigenous beliefs to be preserved. Because at the heart of Sufism is tasawwuf, this idea that that really you need to cultivate a God consciousness uh, in your heart. And you can do this through the Sharia practices, which are the, the kind of outward practices of the Sufi, but also really developing inner meaning. This allows some level of flexibility. While Sufis don't reject the Sharia, there in fact many of them are scholars of Sharia. Sufis, or that brand of, of Islam, which remember is not a separate sect, but actually part of Sunni Islam, a set of disciplinary practices, allows for a level of flexibility. Um, and so what we end up seeing is a two kind of um, uh, Muslims emerge. And one of the Muslims are referred to as uh, Abangang. And Abangang are, means red. Abangang is a sort of uh, the peasant folk, the sort of ordinary folk who end up absorbing that Sufi Islam, but also seeing Sufi Islam um, absorb and replicate Javanese practices. Um, and this is most famously seen in uh, a spiritual tradition known as Kejawin. Uh, Kejawin, or also Kebatin as it's known, Batin being the Arabic word for hidden, ends up becoming a sort of syncretic Javanese, uh, Indonesian, Malaysian, and uh, Islamic tradition. It's a mix of both, in which the Javanese spirits are seen as jinn. So these indigenous spirits that existed that, uh, you know, 
were spirits of the forest and rivers and for natural world. And then you had Muslims talking about jinn, the, the sort of desert fire spirits that, that were uh, part of Islam. Well, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, yeah, we know who the jinn are. We just call them spirits. And they're like, oh, great, you already know the jinn. And so the two become syncretic with one another. This, um, this kind of syncretism is epitomized in the figure of the Kaya or Kaya. The Kaya is a, a kind of rural religious figure. The Kaya is an expert in Islam. But he's a mystic. He's associated with the kind of Wali Sangha I talked about. These folk figures that, that bring Islam. And the Kaya experts are trained in Islam. So as a result, there there is this belief by the indigenous population that the Kaya have um, secret knowledge, batin, right? They have these certain kabatin knowledge. This idea that they had, they well, they spoke Arabic. That's Arabic is powerful. They knew how to read and write. Well, that's powerful. That's associated with mystical powers. And they also know about our traditions, about how to heal and how to hurt, how to use herbs properly. And so they had these kind of uh, myths associated with them. There's kind of five major ones. The idea that the Kaya could fly to Mecca um, and they could go out there and and pray, do the mid-afternoon prayers there, and be back for the afternoon repast. So they could fly all the way to Mecca and back in a matter of hours. That they could walk uh, through rain without ever getting wet. Uh, some of them argue that they could actually walk on water. That they could meditate by the oceans and the, wa the waves would actually stop. That they could lay hands on people and blow on people and heal them. And breath became very important for the uh, Kaya. It was a kind of a yogic practice in some regards. That they would breathe Quranic surahs and ayat on people so they would recite a verse and then whoosh, blow onto someone to blow the barakat the barakat meaning the blessing of that verse onto a person and that they had secret knowledge about people and they could help solve personal problems so they acted as sort of diviners and oracles people would come to them with their problem or sort of therapists even people would come to them with their problems oh my husband and I were not getting along and he would recite prayer the kaya um, would recite prayer and blow on the person. Now, what's interesting about the Kaya is that the Kaya, while mostly male, were also female. Now, this is an opposite, uh, kind of, uh, as opposed to the Pengulu. The Pengulu are official state experts on Islam. These are people trained by the state. These were all male. These were imams of mosques. These were uh, ulima and alim who were trained in Sharia law, who were trained in usul al-fiqh, who was trained in the study of, uh, of Islam. The Kaya, on the other hand, while still a learned figure, really was the, at the intersection of the indigenous Javanese practices and the practices of Islam, as if they were they absorbed the best of both worlds, and that is what Kajawin is. Um, and the idea was that the the, the Kajawin had human wisdom, which was known as Wiksana, Wikasana. They had some form of psychic knowledge uh, or the power of the psyche, the, the mi mental mind and the emotional mind, known as waskita, and they had perfection, a sort of, they, they had reached a state of pure bliss known as sempurna. sempurna. These Javanese uh, kiya would have to control their passions and emotions. They would be live a sort of ascetic life and reach harmony and balance with the universe. Uh, 
So this kind of indigenous shamanic, if you will, practice took on Sufi components. The sort of notion of human wisdom, the, the wikasana, became associated with batin, the hidden knowledge of the Quran, the hidden knowledge of the ayats, the knowledge that was passed down via silsila, that is the line of Sufi transmission. Uh, Sempurna, which was associated with ihsan, the Sufi notion of perfection of being, with of understanding God perfectly, um, as well as absorbing some of the ascetic components of Sufism. And so these figures, these kaya, really became the leaders of the Ambangan, the, the uh, folk Muslims, the, the Muslims who practiced an Islam that was syncretic, that was Sufi-oriented, and that had preserved the Javanese. This is kind of one of the fascinating ways that we understand that Islam arrived gradually, is that Islam doesn't erase the the Islamic tradition that comes to this region doesn't erase the indigenous practices. Instead, it absorbs those indigenous practices and in the end preserves them. Today, there are many people in Indonesia and Malaysia who still practice some of these things, and the kaya still exists to this very day. They're rural folk healers. They know what they know how to create herbal concoctions and say the right prayers in order to heal someone, um, and they are very much experts of the Siluman. The Siluman are the sort of unseen creatures that live in lakes and waters and rivers uh, and seas, and they are very much associated with the jinn. Like the jinn, they have their own clans, they have their own societies, they have their own kings and queens and courts and palaces, and they have to be appeased. You got to know how to work with them, you got to know how to say the right things to them, you have to have the right protection in order to deal with them. The Siluman are tricksters like the jinn, and the two are, are, are become syncretized with one another. Where the Siluman are associated with water, the jinn are associated with fire. But the jinn also, in the form of the uh, Marie, which is a class of the jinn, we'll do a whole episode of the jinn, um, actually then uh, are associated also with water, specifically the fire underneath the waters, like volcanoes and stuff like that. So the Siluman would be uh, appeased by the Kaya, the religious expert. The Kaya would know that, oh, this house is haunted by a Siluman because it's right by a river, or it's haunted by a jinn, and then would know which incenses to smoke in order to clear out the house and drive out the Siluman or the or the jinn. The Siluman could also be trapped and controlled via uh, charms. You amulets could be inscribed with the proper verses and characters that would trap a Siluman or trap a jinn. This is very much uh, kind of the continuation of the myth of Aladdin's lamp, the idea that a genie could exist in a lamp and then then you would become your jinn servant tied to rings, tied to lamps, tied to other amuletic objects. This became the domain of expertise of the Kaya, along with what is known as the Tawiz. The Tawiz is a written charm. The, the Kaya would know a series of sort of Kabbalistic interpretations of the Quran, in which letters and words were associated with one another. So Aleph would be one, and, and Beh would be two, and so on and so forth. And that by, com by combining, kind of, 
calculating the numeric value of a word, they could capture its essence so that they could write something down a certain number of times, or they would repeat a letter a certain number of times, and that would invoke its power. The letter nun in particular becomes very important, um, as well as the sort of alphabetic letters that we find at the beginning of some of the surahs of the Quran. Some of the Quranic surahs start with just letters alif lamim daliel right and so the idea being that those letters had certain mystical qualities that the kayar knew about these written talismans we still find to this very day tawis they're written in these uh, on paper and then folded up and placed in leather charms or on cloth charms they're tied up in knots and they're done to harm people you could do do curses or they're done to help and heal people if someone is sick they would wear something around their neck or it was used for protection or to heal a broken marriage um, and in particular it was seen it was done to uh, uh, keep away the nine evil spirits and there's a variety of them uh, and there's some debate amongst which spirits are which but they they have names like Jaran Penola and uh, Bulus Jimbung and they are mostly like animal spirits one is a, a horse with his head backwards another is a a gnarling snarl dog, another is a land turtle, another is uh, a, uh, a blinding fish, a blind fish, uh, another one is a singing quail, another is a bat, one's a white crocodile, and there's nine of these spirits, and they're considered to be like jinn, but they're supposed to be the most powerful of these nine spirits, and they exist in these kind of natural worlds. So the kaya would write a taweez, a particular written talisman, to keep these nine spirits at bay. The religious figure of the Kaya is a endurance both of the Javanese uh, uh, shamanic tradition of kind of indigenous religious practices that harken back to Buddhism and Hinduism in, in the region, but also is, an, is really kind of a historical trace. It's the way which we can understand how Islam came to Indonesia. If we take the figure of the Kaya as a sort of testament of that history, then we see an Islam that is gradual, that arrives first and foremost via trading routes, via traders who bring in the Sufis with them, and scholars with them, who then Islamize the official court, but who then po uh, popularize Islam through the figure of folk saints and through healing practices and through preaching, a sort of indigenous movement that is dynamic and flexible and, uh, and absorbs the indigenous traditions and preserves them. So I think the figure of Kaya is really telling for this type of history um, and, uh, and tells us of the type of Islam that's still there today. Now we're going to talk about modern Islam because we're going to talk about the kind of revivalist projects, how the Dakwa is transformed in the 20th century and the 21st century in other episodes. But right now, I really wanted to establish this kind of early chronology, the entrance of Islam into uh, Southeast Asia and kind of some of the basic uh, religious characteristics that make the Islam of this region unique to this region, a product of its history, a product of its 
cultural entanglements or cultural encounters um, and how it differs from the Islam that we've, we've been talking about elsewhere. So I wanted to talk about that. I'm going to end here today and we're going to pick this up in our next episodes, but I wanted to give you some book recommendations, which I'll also include in the notes. So I recommend three books here. The first is by a guy named Eric Tagliacozzo, who is a history historian at Cornell, if I'm not mistaken, but he wrote a book called Southeast Asia and the Middle East, Islam Movement and the Lingerie. This is a really, it's a little bit of a dry book, but it's a really good book by Stanford University Press. Um, it's gotten some really good praise from uh historians around kind of the world it's 360 pages so like i said it's a little bit dry but it's a lingerie book so it does really what i call deep root history or what's known as lingerie history it looks not just at a small portion a lot of monographs tend to look at you know 100 years at the most or a couple decades lingerie looks at hundreds of years so we're looking at uh you know hundreds of years of islam in the region and that does a really good job of demonstrate of contextualizing uh the religion in the region, but also helps us to see how it evolved over time. It really does a good job of looking at a, a change over time. So Eric Taglia Kozo's Southeast Asia and the Middle East, Islam Movement and the Long Jiray. I also recommend Ronit Ricci's uh, Islam Translated, Literature, Conversion and the Eric Arabic Cosmopolis of South and Southeast Asia. This is a very interesting book. Um, if you're if you want to really uh, kind of look at the the uh, translation or the transferring of Islam from India to Southeast Asia, the connections between India and Southeast Asia, as I talked about them, this is the book for you. Uh, she's part of the Department of Asian Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, and she was uh, really kind of a more of a textual look at what's going on in the region, particularly through the works of translation. And translation is a very powerful metaphor and process, a social process. So it is a bit of a textual book. It's a kind of a, what I would consider an intellectual history, but she does a really good job of looking at the social components a bit, at how books were received, how books were translated, specifically 101 Nights. Really good, good work that is done there. Uh, and really, uh, I think, contextualizes and elucidates the sort of intellectual and cosmopolitan culture of these of Islam in Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, it's a great book. And then I would also recommend uh, not specifically about Indonesia, but Kan Chaudhry's Trade and Civilization in the Indian Ocean and Economic History from the Rise of Islam to 1750. So again, like um, the first book uh, by Talia Kozo, this is a deep root history book or, or a long durée. You're looking at hundreds of years, from 700 BC, from, from the 7th century to the 18th century. That's a long time. But what he does is he does a great job of looking at trade in the Indian Ocean and how that produces civilization and culture. It is an economic history, so this also is a little bit of a dry book, in my opinion. Um, it doesn't do as good a job if you're looking at, for example, some of the cultural components I've talked about, like the indigenous practices of the Javanese or the Indonesian or the Malaysian. Um, it doesn't do a particularly good job of looking at that, but it does do a fantastic job of really looking at those trade routes and how they produce civilizations, how cultures interacted with one another, and how these port cities really became the centers of civilization for a long period of time. And that and this was actually really peaceful, integrated, uh, you know, interactions until 
the coming of the Portuguese who really disrupted uh, the trade of the Indian Ocean and brought in kind of violent colonialism. Anyways, those are the three books that I would recommend. They're fantastic. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. You can always hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. If you're loving the podcast, please don't hesitate to stop by uh, the podcast app or on iTunes and live, leave a little bit of feedback. I would love to read some of these reviews on air and I would love to hear from all of you. Anyways, I'm going to end there today. Uh, thank you for tuning in and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.